If you have a Bible with you this morning, I would like you to turn to 2 Peter, 2 Peter chapter 2 and verses 1 through 3. 2 Peter chapter 2 and verses 1 through 3. If you don't have a Bible with you and you would like to follow along, we use the English Standard Version of the Bible to preach from. I know that people out there have a number of different English translations, but if you would like to follow along in the ESV in the chair, uh, one of the chairs in front of you, we do have some Bibles there for you to use today. And so uh, we would welcome you to, to take that and use it. I spent many months with you, and for those of you who attend here on a regular basis, you know we spent a long time going through the book of First Peter. And then on May 22nd, Sunday morning, May 22nd, we came to the end of that study. And then the last two Sundays, we've had uh, two just wonderful guest speakers who I thought both did just such a great job on Memorial Weekend. We had our state representative, Tom Leonard, here speaking with us. And then last week, we had Brian Harmon for our graduation service, and he also spoke to us in the evening service. And so... Now, we've come to the end of 1 Peter, and we're at 2 Peter, but we're starting in chapter 2, and some of you may be wondering why, and that's because towards the end of 1 Peter, in the evening service, I started 2 Peter, so I've already done seven messages in the evening service, and if you weren't there for those, they're all online, if you'd like to kind of catch up on where we are at. In just a little bit, I'm going to summarize chapter 1 for us. Uh, but I think you're going to easily be able to pick up on where we are at. In 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, the Apostle Peter writes these words. But false prophets also arose among the people, just, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. Our first point this morning is a brief review. I do want to give us a brief look at the book of 2 Peter and what it is about. The book of 2 Peter is often a neglected or forgotten book in our study of the New Testament. It was interesting as I was preparing for my messages in 1 Peter, there are all kinds, there's all kinds of material out there, all kinds of commentaries, sermon series that other people have preached. But when you come to Second Peter, not so much. There's actually very little out there. I was surprised by it, maybe even a little disappointed by it, even a little disheartened by it because there wasn't as much to draw from as I study, in fact, with some people, not all, not by all by any means, but I'd say the majority of sermon series that I glanced at, they would go through First Peter and then go on to something else. They never went through Second Peter. And I think that the church 
ignores this little epistle at its own peril. Peter wrote it to help believers face a world filled with subtle spiritual deception. He was sensing that his own death was near. Peter did. And he wanted to remind his readers of the truth that he'd already taught them so that those truths would continue to safeguard them after he was gone. And I talked about this in the evening service. What would you do if you knew you were about to die? If you knew, and I think Peter had a real sense that the Lord was going to take him home soon, and he did. If you were about to die, what would be most important to you? I think for many of you, many of us as parents, we would want to make sure that our children, our grandchildren, if you have great-grandchildren, that they understood the essential truths of the faith and that you said to them, don't ever sway from those. Don't ever depart from those. And I tell you that because that's exactly what Peter is doing with his readers in Second Peter. Peter knew the deadly threat of false teachers. And much of the rest of the book is going to be about the threat of false teaching and how it attacks and threatens the church. And the threat of false teaching and false teachers is as real and dangerous today as it was when Peter wrote this letter. I don't want you to think 2 Peter is some old document, some old dusty document that has no relevance for us today. It has great relevance for us today. And I hope that today and in the weeks to come, you'll see how relevant this book is to all of us. Now, Peter himself suffered martyrdom at the end of Nero's persecution. The emperor Nero is most famous for the persecution that he brought in his, in his reign, especially against Christians, and it was towards the end of that that Peter is martyred. Second Peter appears to have been written, as I mentioned, shortly before his death, somewhere around 67 or 68 A.D., Peter does not say where he was when he wrote this epistle. But since his death was imminent and he was martyred in Rome, it is presumed, we don't know this for sure, but it was presumed or is presumed that he wrote this while imprisoned in Rome. Unlike 1 Peter, he does not name his recipients. So we don't know for sure to whom he is writing to, but it is likely based on what he wrote, it is likely that he is writing to the same recipients as of his first letter. Peter, and we went over this many times this past year, Peter wrote his first epistle to comfort and instruct believers who were facing the threat of persecution. They were facing persecution as Peter writes to them in 1 Peter, the great persecution of the emperor Nero was on the horizon. There was this great black, dark cloud on the horizon, and he writes to them to stand fast in Christ, to not give up on their faith, to stay strong in the midst of their persecution. And we spent a lot of time talking about how important it is, no matter what we go through, no matter what we endure, that we stay strong in our faith. In this letter, Peter addresses the even more deadly threat of false teachers who would arise within the church. So as dangerous as persecution can be, 
Persecution comes from without. But here he is warning of a danger that comes from within. False teachers who arise among us. And the apostle warned believers to be on the alert against their deceiving lies. His vivid and and incisive description of heretics and apostates is comparable only to the little book of Jude. So if you really want to study about the danger of false teaching, the two primary sources in the New Testament would be 2 Peter and Jude. Excuse me. Now, Paul also addresses this in 1 and 2 Thessalonians. He addresses it in his two letters to Timothy, but primarily 2 Peter and Jude is where he really, or where the New Testament really focuses in on this. And Peter spent the first chapter, on which, as I mentioned, I did seven sermons, really focusing in on and proclaiming the greatness of our salvation. What a great salvation we have in Jesus Christ. What a great salvation is ours And now in chapter 2, you better protect it. You better protect that message of salvation because there are those who are going to attack it. In the first chapter, and I will just mention this very briefly, Peter says that God has given us divine power or his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. What a statement. In Jesus Christ, you have everything you need for life and godliness. You don't need something out there. You've got it all in here by means of the Holy Spirit who resides in you, who has applied to you the entire redemptive work of Christ, explained to us in his word. And he says, by this, God has given us his great and precious Promises. So if you ever hear that phrase, great and precious promises of God's word, that phrase comes from 2 Peter chapter 1. And Peter says to us that we need to make our calling and election sure. We need to make sure that we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that we have trusted Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. That we have repented of our sin. And invited him to come into our lives to be the Savior and Lord of our lives. And then he ends chapter 1 with that great passage on the inspiration of the Bible. Where he says, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Men literally were carried by God by the Holy Spirit, so that they wrote exactly what he wanted them to write in Scripture. So here's a summation of chapter 1. The confirmation of God's word leads to confidence in his promises, which brings power for godliness and gives us a personal confirmation of our call and election. Let me put it another way. The confirmation of God's word, the fact that we know the Bible is the word of God, 
and that we can be confident in that. That leads us to be confident in all of his promises. And when we're confident in his promises and obey his promises, it brings us power to live lives of godliness and gives us an assurance, an assurance of our call and election, an assurance of our salvation. Well, that leads us to our text this morning. So I've kind of summarized where we've been and now here is where we are at. Our second point is among you. The most terrifying thing about false teaching is that it most often comes from within the church. I want you to remember that this morning. The most terrifying thing about false teaching is that it most often comes from within the church. Yes, Satan attacks us from without. There are false religions, false cults, secularism that threatens the authority of Scripture. But Peter says, I want you to know, most often, false teaching, the false teaching that really threatens you and really threatens the church is that which comes from within. In verse 1 he says, But false prophets also arose among the people. Speaking of the Old Testament. Israel dealt constantly with false prophets. Right now in my own devotions. As I'm reading through the Bible, I'm going through the book of Jeremiah. I love that book. And in the book of Jeremiah... Jeremiah warns the people of Judah over and over again about the false teachers who were so prevalent in his own day. They were distorting the word of God. They were trying to kill Jeremiah the prophet. And they were deceiving the people. And Jeremiah says, do not listen to them. They say peace, peace, when there is no peace. And their destruction is sure. God is going to bring his severest judgment upon those false prophets. But false prophets also arose among the people. Now watch this. Just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. Toward the very end of 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 5, I did an entire message on the attacks of Satan on the church and on you. Your adversary, the devil, Peter says, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking, somewhere, seeking someone to devour. Resist him firm in the faith. Resist him standing firm in your faith. But know this, Satan is on the prowl Satan is seeking someone to devour. Let us all understand this morning that Satan wants to destroy our confidence in the Word of God. He wants to cause confusion in our minds about the essential teachings of the Christian faith. I think we'd be surprised sometimes kinds of questions that are milling around 
even in churches like ours, that are milling around in people's minds. Is Jesus really God? I mean, like, is he God himself? Did he really rise from the dead? Maybe he didn't really rise from the dead. And maybe if he did, maybe he was only asleep and maybe he never really died. Question a lot of people grapple with. I just don't know if I can believe in a literal hell. I just don't know if I can believe that God would actually send people to a place like that. Is Jesus really the only way? I mean, really, with all the religions that are out there today, all the religions around the world, can we really say that Jesus is the only way? That Christianity is the only way? Can we really, really say that? And is the Bible the word of God? God, I mean, is it really the word of God? Wasn't it written by a bunch of men over a long period of time, like thousands of years ago? I mean, isn't it really just the writings of men? How can, how can we really know that this is the word of God? How do we know the Koran isn't the word of God? How do we know the Book of Mormon isn't the word of God? I, so people do. And I'll tell you, Satan loves that. And he's like in their minds going, go for it. Think about it. Are these things really true? And every pastor, every teacher, and every counselor within the church needs to be frightened by this passage of Scripture. We do. We need to be frightened by this. There will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in False heresies. If you're not familiar with the word heresy, it simply means a false teaching, something which is not biblically accurate, something that distorts the Bible. And that's why some in past history have been called heretics. They are those who distort the scriptures, who are promoters of false teaching. In 1 Peter, I spent three weeks in a row talking to you about the fact that we live in a culture right now, right now, this day, okay, June 12, 2016, we live in a culture that is increasingly secular and that is growing more and more hostile toward conservative evangelical Christians like ourselves. And three weeks in a row I talked about and Peter writes about in 1 Peter about how we are to stand strong in Christ and let our lights shine so that they may might glorify our God and no matter how they treat us and no matter how they may slander us we must speak in love. We must proclaim the truth of God's word uncompromisingly. And we talked about those issues that are out there today. Same-sex marriage. The legalization of same-sex marriage. Huge issue. The LGBT agenda, or now the LGBTQ agenda, queer or questioning. It is a very aggressive 
agenda that is being pushed in the White House and all over our nation. Gender identity. Right now, as we meet, what a significant issue. Confusion, huge confusion over gender identity. And folks, get ready, because the bathroom issue is just the tip of the iceberg. Okay? The whole bathroom issue that is going on right now is just the tip of a much larger biblical and philosophical argument and position that we are going to have to address as a church and we are going to have to address as families and we are going to have to address as individuals. The abortion issue is not going away. I praise God for some of the progress that's been made in that area. I have mentioned to you on a number of occasions Al Mohler, president of Southern Seminary, who is one of the leading spokespersons in our nation today on Christianity and the culture at large. He said recently, and I quote directly from him, he said, if Hillary Clinton is elected as president, she will be the most radically pro-abortion president that we have ever had. He said that the entrance of Bernie Sanders into the Democratic primary process has pushed the entire Democratic Party to the liberal slash progressive left. And it is pushing Hillary Clinton to the left. Because if you have followed this at all, you know that she cannot win without winning over Bernie Sanders supporters. She is now to the left of President Obama. She is now way to the left of her own husband in his two terms as president. She has said publicly that she will seek to strike down existing federal bans on abortion. She will do whatever she can as president to strike down those bans, those federal bans on abortion when she becomes president. Those are bans that her own husband left intact. Those are bans that even President Obama has left intact. Now, if you don't think this is true, after she secured her party's nomination, one of the very first places she went was to Planned Parenthood. And on Friday, and we need to know these things, from a Christian worldview, we need to be alert to what is going on. She went to a photo op with Cecile Richards, who is the president of Planned Parenthood, and there was a famous photo on Friday, just two days ago, on Friday in all the media outlets of her and Cecile Richards holding hands raising their hands together. So when she secured her party's nominations, one, nomination, one of the first places, and I, I want to say secured their nomination, they haven't had their convention yet, but in electoral votes. That's one of the first places she goes to. Cecile Richards is a person with enormous clout in our nation right now. She has direct access to President Obama. She has direct access to Hillary Clinton. 
Now, I am not telling you this to talk about the election, okay? This has been, we all agree, this has been a very difficult, confusing election process, unlike any most of us have seen in our lifetimes. And folks, we still got four and a half months to go. We do, we got a long way to go yet. I'm not here, I am not here to talk about Hillary Clinton, I'm not here to talk about Bernie Sanders, I'm not here to talk about Donald Trump this morning. I am here to tell you in these issues that are facing us, these issues that are so prominent and prevalent in our culture today, that are the antithesis, that are totally opposed to what the Bible teaches, that you are going to see Christian teachers and you are going to see Christian pastors embrace those issues and support them. We worry about those out there, they are going to rise up from within us in the church as a whole. And you are going to see pastors on CNN interviewed saying that they support transgender rights. And you are going to see pastors and teachers being interviewed by CBS News or NBC or ABC saying that they fully support the LGBTQ agenda. You are going to see that. Don't be surprised. As difficult as these issues are, it's going to be even more difficult to see people who name the name of Christ embrace them and support them. And don't be surprised. Don't be surprised when it happens. Peter says, there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in false heresies. We are being criticized, even condemned for our positions. We are being told we need to be more loving. We are being told we need to be, and these are the buzzwords of the day, we need to be more inclusive. We need to be more tolerant. John MacArthur lists a number of characteristics of false teachers. The primary characteristic of a false teacher, and you can mark this down in your minds for the future, the primary characteristic of a false teacher is that they will deny the person and work of Jesus Christ or question the person and work of Jesus Christ. Peter uses an interesting phrase. He says, even denying the master who bought them. Now that doesn't mean they were saved and somehow lost their salvation. That isn't what it's saying at all. It means they're denying the Savior who provided such a great salvation. They don't want anyone to be master over them, even though they will say they are Christians, even though they will give lip service to the Bible itself. False teachers cannot embrace the fact that Jesus is fully God. You look at every false religion, every false cult out there, every one of them, they do not say that Jesus is God. They will say, some of them will say he was a prophet and a great teacher, but he is not God. Last Sunday evening, Brian Harmon gave a great message on the four most important questions of the Christian faith. And the first question is, who is Jesus? 
Folks, if we don't get that right, we don't get any of it right. Who is Jesus? Is he just a prophet? Is he just a great teacher and a good example? Or is he God himself? John Piper is one of those who did preach on 2 Peter. And when he came to 2 Peter chapter 2, this is what he said to his own congregation. He said, 2 Peter 2 is aimed at keeping me from being a heartless pastor. It aims to keep me from playing games in this pulpit. It aims to keep my sermons from dissolving into pep talks about the power of positive thinking. It aims to make me earnest about my calling and angry about false teaching and grieved over the destruction of the ungodly. This chapter is no accident in Holy Scripture. It is the Word of God. Folks, we need to know this. There will always be men and women who distort, twist, and water down the Word of God for their own personal fame and greed. In verse 2, in verse 2, it says, And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. And many will follow their sensuality. It means their, their own thinking about their sexual desires and urges. I mentioned a few minutes ago that John MacArthur said the first characteristic of a false teacher is they deny the person and work of Christ or will not fully acknowledge who he is. He said the second characteristic is that false teaching is almost always tied. Think through this with me. It is almost always tied to a distorted understanding of God's teaching on biblical sexuality. False teaching is almost always tied to a distorted false teaching about biblical sexuality. Folks, what we are going through right now is not unusual. It is actually a tale as old as time that goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Peter's dealing with it in the first century. Many will follow their sensuality. There are always those who are going to say, how can you believe that sexuality is reserved for the marriage relationship, one man, one woman, for a lifetime? How can you believe in traditional marriage? There have always been those who said, what's wrong with sex outside of marriage? What's wrong? And again, this goes back hundreds of years. What's wrong with multiple partners? I've shared this with you before. Homosexuality ran rampant in the Roman Empire. This isn't new. When they distort the word of God, it is almost always tied to a distorted biblical sexuality. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And we are seeing this today. The truth that we hold to is being blasphemed. How can you not, how can you not believe in same-sex marriage or support same-sex marriage? How can you not support transgender rights? What's wrong with you? 
Open up your mind. Get on the right side of history. And verse 3 says, And in their greed, they will expose you with false words. The third characteristic of a false teacher is they, their false teaching is almost always tied to their ability to prosper from it, to gain from it financially. It is always beneficial to them financially. If they aren't with it, if they aren't going with the cultural current, they may sacrifice financially. And so they follow right along with the current of the culture. We all know there have been false cult leaders for years who have had multiple wives, who have had sex with young girls, who have driven Mercedes, who have lived in plush homes, all in the name of religion. It is a, these are the characteristics that tend to mark them. The word false here is interesting. They will exploit you with false words. The word false here actually comes from a Greek word where we ultimately get or have gotten our English word plastic. Now when we use the word plastic today, we tend to think of it as a product, metal versus plastic, for instance. But historically, in the etymology of the word, it actually meant something different. And even in our own nation, early on, and some of you may remember this, the word plastic meant that you weren't genuine. It meant that you were a fake or a phony. She's so plastic. He's so plastic. He's a fake. He's a phony. And that's the word that is here. And in their greed, they will exploit you with plastic, with false words. And then he says, their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. At the end of verse 1, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. Know this. Peter wants to encourage all of us that no matter how many false teachers threaten us, God is going to bring severe judgment upon them. God is not idle. God is not aloof somewhere, indifferent to what's happening in the world. And folks, God is not asleep. He's not asleep at all. He is going to bring sure judgment to all of those who distort his word and deceive his people. I want to end this way. If we are going to stand against the destructive errors of false teachers, we must determine to study, believe, and obey every part of Scripture. We must affirm and reaffirm over and over again that the Bible is the Word of God and we are going to hold to its teachings no matter what. No matter what our culture says, no matter what happens in the world around us. I want to end with a definition of the inspiration of Scripture. I shared this in, the, in an evening service about a month ago. A number of people told me they found it helpful. I want to share it with you. It is something that I have actually shared in our Bible doctrines class over the years. There are other definitions that could be given, but this is a solid, it comes from a theological book. It is a solid definition. What do we mean when we say that the Bible is inspired 
and inerrant and fully authoritative. What do we mean when we say that? Here's the definition. We believe that all Scripture, the whole Bible, Old Testament 39 books and New Testament 27 books, is God-breathed. The words of Scripture are just as much God's words as if he had verbally spoken them to us. The Holy Spirit guided the writers of each book using their own individual styles and personalities so that what they wrote is exactly what God wanted written. Divine inspiration extends equally and fully to the Old and New Testaments, to every book of both Testaments, to every part of each book, and to every word as recorded in the original manuscripts. Folks, we believe that the Bible is the Word of God. And when you read the Bible, God is speaking to you. Now, sometimes there are some misunderstandings about inspiration. Sometimes we think that the writers of the Bible were inspired by divine dictation, that God just said, okay, Peter, take a pen and a piece of paper and write this down. But that's not how it happened. God so moved in the writers of Scripture, using their own personalities, using their own writing styles. He so carried them along by the Holy Spirit that what they wrote was exactly word for word what God wanted written. So when we read the book of Luke, we see Luke using a sophisticated Greek written to an audience that would embrace that. When we come to the Gospel of Mark, we see a very simple form of Greek. Mark used very simple words. He wrote primarily to the Romans who wouldn't understand all the Old Testament background, but they were both equally inspired by God. That is the beauty and the wonder of the Bible. Different men writing at different times, equally and authoritatively inspired by the Holy Spirit to write down exactly, exactly what God said. That last sentence is the most important. Folks, inspiration extends to every book of both Testaments, to every part of each book, and yes, to every word as recorded in the original manuscripts. And the reliable English translations that you have today are so close have been translated with such meticulous attention that you can confidently sit here this morning and say with your Bible, I have the word of God. And God has spoken. And I know, I know what he wants me to do. Folks, the preaching and teaching and obeying of the Bible isn't just an important thing. It's everything. And the church needs to rise up as it has in every generation and say, with Martin Luther in the Protestant Reformation, here I stand. I can do no other. No matter what you say to me, no matter what you do to me, here I stand. I can do no other. For the church... And for all of us, this is life and death.
Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the Bible. We thank you for your inspired, inerrant, authoritative word. O oh Lord, help us to humble ourselves before you and to open your words as they truly are the very words of God, to drink them in, to eat them, to obey them, to proclaim them for the sake of your name and the glory of your fame throughout the nations. In Jesus' name, amen.